is in session welcome to smarten up your education in professional wrestling i am one of your hosts stefan claypool i am the other host drew zelitas welcome back yes welcome back drew before we get into our our main topic today uh i have a fun experience to share um Uh, i love it i'm already loving it yes so since we last spoke um there were uh, two wrestling shows that I want to talk about for a moment. Uh, oh, one awesome. of which uh, my wife and I attended in uh, the Bay Area. We went and saw a SmackDown house show the night before uh, okay. TLC in December. Uh, it was in Oakland. Uh, the headline match oh, okay. was AJ Styles against The Miz. Uh, the secondary main event was Charlotte Flair and Asuka um, tearing down the house. <laughs> And, you know, mm-hmm. while I was there, I was just reflecting on the atmosphere of a house show, which we, we've talked about in an earlier episode, how different and unique house shows are in terms of their feel. It was a very loose show. Anyone who was going to be in a TLC match the next night was probably going about 75%. They were, they were storing up yeah. their, their energy. Um, but it was, it was a really entertaining, enjoyable show. And when I left, I, I talked to uh, you know my family over the next couple days, and I said, it was a lot of fun. You should go at some point. Well, last Friday, my parents went to their first professional wrestling oh, wow. show. They uh, went to a Raw House show in, uh, okay. in their hometown of Charleston, West Virginia. Okay. The uh, the big draw on this one is it's it's one of the uh, the house show tours that John Cena is actually making appearances on. Oh yeah, so like yeah, he was kind of back to, for the holiday time, mm-hmm. which is also, as I understand it, very lucrative for WWE's house show circuit. Yes, um, it's kind of like I, I, not to to blow up, but it's like that's also when the Harlem Globetrotters are touring. Mm-hmm. They're always doing the Christmas shows, yep. uh, the holiday shows. So WWE does does very well then. Yeah. So my my dad said that the only other time he had ever seen a live wrestling show was like in 1981, <laughs> and Dusty Rhodes was on the card, and my mom had never yeah. seen a live show. Um, huh. They loved it. They Aww. absolutely loved it. Um, they were very impressed by Sasha Banks and Bailey. Um, they were very impressed yeah. by. My dad walked away as a big fan of Lucha House Party. And, okay. Yeah, which is not what I expected. <laughs> I just now I just I'm I'm just loving this image of him like in the mask doing oh, yeah. the he was, doing the cheers. <laughs> he was all into it. Yeah. Um, they, they were both thrilled with John Cena and they were, uh, both, uh, both very impressed by how large Drew McIntyre was. Um, yes. And and what, what I, the reason I bring up the show or the story is that we've talked before about, you know, that how do you get someone into wrestling? Um, and my, my folks, when I was a a kid watching wrestling, they would watch, uh, but they were never going to any shows or anything like that. And they haven't paid attention in. 15 years at this point. Um, But going out to a live show, and specifically a house show, and just being in that atmosphere, 
they're back into it hard now. They're asking questions. They're excited about the huh. next time they come to town. And just it's that the magic of the live experience. We've talked about it, and this was uh, a, a very, very tangible uh, manifestation yeah. of that. That's awesome. I, I, it's, this is not, I haven't gotten to this point yet, but uh, after uh, last time I talked about going to that Starcade, mm-hmm. uh, unique house show with, with Maggie, and, and I guess we told my parents about it over the holidays, and they still were like, oh, okay. And, and maybe they thing. never. Maybe they never believed me, but maybe they believed Maggie when she said she ended up enjoying herself as that was her first show. So my parents have not been to a show, but they have emailed me like, hey, look, it's coming to Greenville. That's my where yes. my parents live, my hometown. They're like, you maybe you guys would want to come down and go to it. So I feel like I've gotten to the point where uh, they might not go on their own, but I bet if I came to where they live, they would maybe join us. So uh, after hearing your uh, parents having a good mm-hmm. time, maybe maybe next time I see that they're going to be in town where my parents live, I'll be like, we're going to come down and, and I'm taking the whole family. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, like they've never been really were never fans or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I think, again, yeah, absolutely. You... It, you if you just if they have an open mind like mm-hmm. you just you get swept up in it it's something that uh you know the the tv experience will never capture it's yeah. always you know there are so many television conventions that sometimes work really well for wrestling but at its core it is has been always will be a a, a live spectacle yes so yeah that's that's so wonderful to hear. And yeah, and that and I like that there was the follow up. Like I think some people can go and it and it stands as its own one of a kind mm-hmm. experience. I saw that once. I never need to watch it again. But then sometimes maybe you do get caught up in it. Yeah. I think you know. Like my, my mom bought ways. a shirt. My mom bought a shirt. <laughs> she she Dude, bought a shirt. She was... bought a Seth fucking Rollins shirt. Oh my god. That's so cool. Uh, now I'm just like imagining her walking around like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm Seth Rollins fan. I know, That's I know I, who Seth Rollins is. I love is. it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. We, we, yeah, I don't know. We didn't get any merch, but uh, there was a couple of Balor shirts that we were looking at. Um, that's that's Maggie's favorite. It's, the, yeah, that, that that's a whole other conversation we we won't get into now. Yeah, but, she's uh, still operating the Prince of Finn should not be wearing a shirt though, right? Right, oh, exactly. It. So, um, or as she always mentions, why is Finn always wearing his own shirts? I'm like, <laughs> I guess he's advertising it, but I agree, it's a little weird. Yeah. But I'm like, they just do. You wear your own shirt. It's just what happens. She's like, I don't see why he's wearing a shirt at all. I'm like, I agree with you. So I think she almost didn't buy one out of principle. Good, like good. these shirts, he shouldn't be covering himself up. So I'm not going to buy one. I'm not going to support this. <laughs> exactly. She was making a very clear stance on how she feels about shirted Finn Balor. So, uh, and again, I I am not going to disagree. So you got to got to give the man props. All right. Exactly. So speaking of, go. When did you say your dad last went to a show? Uh, he Dusty, last like, went did to you say a 79, show. Uh, I think it was eighty-one, eighty-two. And where he lived at the time, it it probably would have been either a Jim Crockett promotion show or a a 
promotion that Jim Crockett was trading talent with. Right, because if we're doing West Virginia, that's sort of the northern end of the Mid-South yeah. uh, area. Uh, well, speaking of that, he probably, uh, you know, it was not involved with sort of WWF at the time or mm -hmm. WWF because uh, that's sort of what we're going to start getting into both today and actually for the next several weeks we've yeah. you know we're when you're talking contemporary wrestling or not even contemporary when we're talking last 20 years of wrestling it's it's about WWE and everyone else and that's okay. That's sort of the nature of it. You can't talk about wrestling and not talk about WWE. But we want to talk about those others, the everyone else, what it means to exist as a company, as a creation, as a... Oh, no. Drew. Am I... Can you hear me? Am I getting lost? Yes. Yeah, you you were lost for a minute, but uh, but right. now you're found. That's all right. I'll I'll pick up a little bit in there, and we can splice. Um, but yeah, how to exist sort of outside WWE, but in relation to them. And so, in order to do that, we want to sort of talk about first how we got to that place. What were the other sort of promotions coexisting mm -hmm. with at the time WWF before they became the monolith that they sort of are today and have been for about 20 years. And I, I think the the impetus for taking this look back and then ultimately kind of look to the sides of the, the primary world we've been talking in, uh, number one, it's it's overdue. Uh, we devoted a, a large two-part episode to WCW, um, but there there is a wider wrestling world out there, and it, it's important to acknowledge that and understand that for as much as we've talked about WWE as the wrestling company, it is not all of wrestling. And then the, the second real driver is at, at the time of this recording, not to, to date us too much, but uh, within the last few weeks, we've seen the, the final announcement of the launch of All Elite Wrestling, uh, which is uh, ostensibly a new promotion uh, run by Cody Rhodes and by the Young Bucks, the Jackson Brothers. Uh, a lot of money behind it. Very interesting talent roster taking shape. And, and the more we looked at that, the question that kept coming up was, um, what will it take for that to be successful? And then the, uh, the secondary question is, what does it mean to be successful? Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, exactly. What is what does success look like um, in today's landscape? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I think looking back will will help us understand that because, uh, again, being WWE is not necessarily the way to be successful versus WWE, um, and it's sort of uh, serendipitous or makes a lot of sense that that this company, one of the big names behind it is Cody Rhodes, mm -hmm. son of Dusty Rhodes, who, you know, whose association with a variety of, of, of companies over time shows, obviously he ends up also as mm -hmm. almost everyone does for a certain amount of time working for and in relationship to WWE. But uh, if, if one of those people that was, wrestling outside of wwe not just as a wrestler but as a promoter as a writer all these things um 
And so in some ways, you know, Cody's heritage and legacy uh, ties him to that. But then you also have this sort of spirit of people like the Young Bucks, other members Mm -hmm. of the elite, Hangman Page, where it's not just a bunch of WWE cast-offs, but this sort of this rise of the independently grown talent Mm -hmm. that never stepped foot in a WWE ring. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of interesting history there to get into. So I I think as we're looking backwards through today's conversation, um, the general framing that we'll adopt here, because we'll talk today about, I'd say, probably several different promotions, but... Um, we would think of today's topics really as being the, the last of the old guard. Um, these are the, the promotions that were contemporaries of uh, WWF or the WWWF, uh, of <clears throat> what became WCW uh, through its evolution, um, and who, as the 70s turned into the 80s, turned into the 90s, and the world changed around them, uh, each had different ways of trying to uh, trying to keep up and trying to stay alive and try to remain viable in the business, and each of which ultimately failed to do so. Uh, and I, I think looking at that base of companies, um, we will find things in that that will be instructive as to what not to do when trying to compete with the behemoth and how you are defining your success and how you are defining uh, what it is that you want to achieve. Whereas the the second half, the sort of post-WWE, post-consolidation phase of our, our series will probably look more at companies that have, to one degree or another, largely succeeded in surviving in a post-consolidation world. Um. I think the the big question, because there are a lot of places and a lot of these companies were contemporaries, is where do you want to start? Uh, I mean, if we want to go sort of historically, I think kind of the early 80s, this sort of um, basically when Vince McMahon uh, starts establishing sort of the WWF as a national promotion, sort of setting the terms for what wrestling will become, though Mm -hmm. it was not a proven success yet. So what else was going on in the early to mid 80s and why some of those things that were going on ultimately didn't succeed? If we want to look at sort of, I mean, perhaps the most indicative of that, um, and maybe it's kind of, we're starting this story at the end of, or at least the beginning of the end of, of the AWA was the sort of uh, when Hulk Hogan sort of jumped ship yeah. uh, in, in, in 1983 to Vince McMahon's company. Now to be clear, this wasn't like when Hogan goes to WCW in the nineties where mm-hmm. you have like, this guy is the biggest name in wrestling. He was not much of anyone in the AWA. McMahon sort of turns him into something, but it speaks to changing conceptions of sort of wrestling. So the AWA, the American Wrestling Alliance, uh, or Association, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, thinking NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. But the AWA is sort of, um, again, if we're coming off of what we've talked about previously on this show, this sort of regional era, it was 
a large territory, mm-hmm. um, but it was still basically Midwest. Uh, you Minnesota, know, Wisconsin, of, and, Chicago, kind of upper right. Midwest. Right, and it definitely expands beyond there, but that's your sort of hub. It's still mm-hmm. not national as much as the name might suggest. It has those relationships with other regional promotions, so it can have a more national feel with trading and exchanging mm-hmm. talent. Uh, but you're definitely sort of Vern Gagne's baby uh, running out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I think maybe starting there uh, with what they were doing, mm-hmm. but then what they tried to keep doing in those sort of 80s days where things really started to change. I think that that's a great starting point for a couple of reasons. Um, One of which is the characteristics that we see in the AWA, I think are fairly common for a lot of the companies that we're going to talk about here Um, in its founding, its rise and its eventual fall. Um, It was, pretty archetypical of a lot of wrestling promotions of its days. And once you got past WWF and Jim Crockett promotions, it it was a major player in the world of wrestling. Uh, And second, because I think Vern Gagne himself, the uh, founder of the AWA, its standard bearer for a long time, uh, owner and uh, the man who who basically saw it from cradle to grave, uh, is such a, a fascinating character and so emblematic of the kind of wrestling promoter that Vince McMahon was explicitly aiming to put out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, so the AWA, a promotion based in the upper uh, Midwest, kind of the, like we said, uh, Chicago, Wisconsin, based in Minnesota, um, was founded by Vern Gagne to break away from the NWA. And we, we think of Ganya in his later years as kind of the, the older man, the grand old man of wrestling. But in his early years, he was a, a rebel and an innovator and someone who had a very clear view in his mind of what constituted a, a correctly run wrestling promotion. Uh, Ganya was himself a technical wrestler. Uh, he was a, a classic babyface. And he saw the wrestling world in terms of a core of technical talent that was supplemented and augmented by colorful characters that Hmm. audiences could connect to um, beyond the kind of standard grappler steps into a ring in a singlet. In a lot of ways, he was the guy who, particularly in the 60s and 70s, took the model that Gorgeous George had established as an individual Mm -hmm. wrestler and spread that as a a promotion-wide philosophy of you are your character, and that is as important as you being your wrestler. Yeah, I mean, for all the credit others get, I mean, I agree with there's a... You could look at that as a sort of modernization of wrestling, at least in the sense of, like, the biggest... Of yeah, establishing that large shift of emphasizing character, mm-hmm. sort of over technical skill. Not that there wasn't, as you met, said, sort of really quality technical wrestlers, but uh, that emphasis of character. There's a reason a lot of the biggest characters that would go on to become the big characters associated with WWF in the '80s mm-hmm. started uh, in AWA. They sort of cut their teeth there. Um, beyond those sort of characters, the idea, a lot of, you know, there was obviously some of this in NWA as well, but 
some of the super cards that we've come to know and love, uh, some of the use of managers and uh, interference, uh, a lot of those sort of things that made wrestling more than just two guys get in a ring and pretend to fight, uh, yeah, are really coming out of that that Vern Gagne uh, school, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, of, of wrestling. Um, and he's he's such an interesting guy who crosses both of those periods. As a wrestler, one of the more sort of technical, remembered as one of those sort of old school guard of like just big men who do sort of grappling, but also emphasizing this character part mm-hmm. is is always really fascinating. Yeah, I think that what the the thing that Ganya really did and how he structured his promotion and the basis of competition that he set up uh, in the world of territory wrestling was you as a wrestler will come to my promotion and I will make you into a character. I will make you into a brand that you can carry with yourself. Ganya was one of the first, um, first wrestling promoters to really define the art of the modern promo not he himself, because he, he was not a particularly exciting talker, but in terms of creating an environment, that classic backstage interview structure, um, not coincidentally, with Mean Gene Okerlund uh, as his, yep. his, uh, his interview man, to allow his wrestlers to flex and show personality that they could not show in the ring. And you would think of someone, again, like Gorgeous George doing that very much on his own terms and grabbing whatever mic was available, but this was all up and down the card. If you're going to be here, you are going to have a character. And the list of alumni that come out of that that territory and go on to uh, bigger and better things is is enormous. I mean, we, we talk about uh, Hogan and Oakland already. Bobby Heenan, this was his home territory. Uh, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty got their starts here. Uh, Kurt Hennig uh, famously got his start in, uh, in the AWA. Scott Hall was in the AWA. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. list the list becomes very long. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So um, the that ends up being part of this um, this transition. And again, if the thing that set WWF apart was again a cr- concerted effort to establish wrestling as a national system Mm -hmm. uh, under one roof. Uh, Again, as we've talked about in the past, building on the rise of cable technology in particular, that you suddenly don't have to think in terms of sort of local distribution. Um, You know, that doesn't mean Gagne didn't foresee that it just he maybe wasn't particularly suited to take advantage of that the way mcmahon and the wwf was one of the advantages of being you know housed in the northeast was that's where national cable Mm -hmm. and television sort of broadcasting was housed and so gagne's sort of and the awa's downfall it was a lot of different things um you know, some of it outside their their uh, control. One thing that does somewhat come up, and this ties into some of the other uh, examples we may talk about, particularly WCCW down in Texas, uh, is uh, the role of nepotism. Uh, this sort of the classic, the classic idea of 
when you are running the show, you get to also decide who is pushed as your sort of stars and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and there is a little bit of that uh, that goes on towards the end uh, with uh, Vern Gagne's son, Greg Gagne, mm-hmm. uh, sort of becoming champion and becoming sort of the face of the promotion. Um and it's and it's I, I always find that kind of, of funny and just sort of appropriate for wrestling in that there's you know those old ideas of you know keep keeping things close uh, keeping things within the family sometimes never went away um, and that that certainly end up becoming a case with uh, with the AWA um, also you know, speaking to the fact that, you know, Vince McMahon uh, was never, he worked in the business with his father, but he was never a wrestler. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that matters as well. This was not a wrestler running a wrestling company. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was someone related to wrestling running a wrestling company. And again, something we might want to keep in the back of our head when we look at a lot of these examples mm-hmm. we see through the next series of episodes, whether that's Impact, uh, ROH, mm-hmm. or the upcoming AEW, is there a difference there when when who's behind the scenes is the same as the people in front of the scenes? Yeah, and and with Ganya in particular, you know, Ganya was before he broke away and formed the AWA, he was an NWA wrestler. He was a regular yes. contender for for Luthez's NWA championship. Ganya was. He, he was an old school guy and you know by the time we were entering into the 80s and and Vince McMahon was making making his run uh Ganya Ganya was born in 1926 and he was not a young man at that point he was not an old man but he was <laughs> he was no longer the young man who had broken away from the wrestling world in defiance for his own ambition uh, Ganya had an idea of what he thought wrestling was. And Ganya, I think if he had been 20 years younger at that point, he might have had some flexibility in him to be more nimble. Um, the the famous story around uh, Ganya losing Hulk Hogan out of the NWA was Hogan had, uh, he had left the WWF and appeared in Rocky III and became a hot commodity from that. He comes Thunder to, Lips. Thunder Lips. He, <laughs> he comes to the AWA, uh, becomes very hot in the AWA, and really kind of starts developing what would be the Hulkamania character, and ends up in a long, simmering feud with Nick Bockwinkle, who was Ganya's great champion of the kind of second half of the 70s into the 80s, his standard bear. And Bockwinkle, uh, who I adore as a wrestler, uh, was one of these great technicians and very old school in, in terms of his presentation. He was wonderful. Um, Ganya refused to put the AWA heavyweight championship on Hulk Hogan's waist. Um, and th- there is an argument in there that Ganya tried to make that, ah, well, it's better if Hulk is chasing and, and kind of that side of it. And there's some truth to that. But ultimately... Vern Gagne's idea of what a champion should be and what a promotional standard bearer should be was that old-school technical wrestler. And Hogan, who very much was not that, was not going to be the standard bearer in Vern Gagne's AWA. When this goes down and Hogan leaves, 
Gagne never really recovered from that. His his closest bet to doing so was when he made Kurt Hennig his champion several years later, mm-hmm. and Hennig was gone within a year because at that point he he could see where the dollars were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, it, to say there was a there was certainly coexistence for a little while between AWA and WWF. Uh, pushing national, but for the AWA, this was definitely, you know, as you sort of said, this was sort of past their prime, so they were Mm -hmm. never really positioned to coexist or challenge uh, WWF. It really was a pretty quick takeover. Um, Just, again, a combination of that national spread and just the money and the ability to siphon a lot of that talent uh, away from the AWA, all for both from both a sort of financial perspective and you know arguably a creative perspective mm-hmm. that you know it wasn't just that the money was maybe better in WWF, but that guess what Hogan, you're going to do well here, or yeah. guess what uh, Jason Ventura, you're going to be on you know TV more. You're, you're these are going to be there's going to be more eyes on you. So you know they were never really in a good position to coexist but they 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 went down fighting mm-hmm. uh throughout the 80s uh eventually sort of teaming up with their former sort of NWA mm-hmm. uh competition uh in the mid 80s sort of teaming up with Jim Crockett mid south uh all these other NWA alliance uh partners uh to try to sort of once they sort of all realized well, we're we're all kind of yeah. uh, we're all kind of screwed here uh, now that the WWF has established a foothold, particularly after uh, WrestleMania, uh, you know, at the time just called WrestleMania, now WrestleMania One, sort of establishing. All right, here, 1985. This is sort of a big deal. Um, so yeah, never really coexisting, uh, but sort of the last gasps, I would say, of of much more traditional, uh, yeah, a traditional style of running a promotion. Uh, yeah, and I, I think when when I ultimately reflect on what was the downfall of the AWA, it, it was not dissimilar to the story that you would think of any kind of successful company in an industry when the industry kind of moves past that company. The mm-hmm. AWA was tremendously innovative in its time, and its time passed— and it took a little while to die, and it did not outlive its founder. Um, that's a that mm. is a more normal story than mm. the story of the WWE. Um, and I, when we look at some of the other promotions that we'll talk about today, uh, a lot of that will echo through, even as the the names and the places and and some of the particulars change. Um, the world passed the AWA by. And just like a lot of once successful companies, um, they couldn't catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I believe it was 90, 90 or 91 that the AWA right, finally yeah. shuts down uh, for good. Um, you know, uh, and that's that's the same story. We don't have to spend as much time on uh, WCCW, mm-hmm. World Class Championship yeah. Wrestling out of Texas, because uh, I think a lot of that mirrors... 
uh, what was going on in AWA. They they were never as big, but um, it's a similar story. Uh, in this case, uh, rather than just a, a, a figure like Vern Gagne, you have rather an entire family, mm-hmm. uh, the Von Erichs, uh, all sort of... Uh, Fritz and his several, several children yep. uh, who sort of uh, continued it on uh, for a little bit. Um, again, they're running out of Texas. So um, again, you've kind of got Jim Crockett and most of the NWA um, mostly around the Southeast, mm-hmm. um, sort of across those various regions. You have WWF out of the Northeast, who's suddenly pushing national. We, we talked about the upper Midwest. So now you have sort of Texas as its own sort of place. Um, and again, a very sort of similar story here. You, uh, you know, Texas had this sort of legacy that allowed them to sort of the WCCW to sort of exist on their own for mm-hmm. quite a while to not get involved with these other big alliances uh, just kind of because they, they had, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. kind of just Texas. Texas is an independent state, yep. right? Uh, Texas is the most, we could be our own country state. And so I think there's <laughs> something to that um, with WCCW. Um, but again, a very similar story. You have a, in this case, a, a close knit family sort of running things. Uh, the Jarrett's get involved, so mm-hmm. you know it becomes an extended family. But there's still this sense of uh, you know keeping things close. But it's another place where a lot of really big names sort of start before later ending up uh, in WWF. In this case, things names like McFoley, the Freebirds, um, Jake, Jake the Snake, uh, all sort of uh, running through. Uh, this sort of uh, Texas-based uh, promotion. I think that it's there are a lot of similarities between WCCW and AWA. I think there are there are a couple important differences to emphasize those. Well, um, um, first of all, the AWA. One of the things that the AWA did really well through its rise and, and into its fall a little bit was make use of television. Um, mm-hmm. AWA was, was a very television conscious promotion. Um, and you know, was the, they were the wrestling provider of wrestling on ESPN, for instance, in ESPN's mm-hmm. early days and their rise. I mean, very, very, very media focused. Uh, WCCW was a live event promotion. Uh, mm-hmm. there was television, but their shows, the things that you would see that they were famous for their shows were selling out enormous venues in Texas. Um, mm. sell, selling out, you know, Texas football stadiums. Um, yeah. Screaming crowds of wild fans who wanted to see the, the Von Erics. You know, the, the things that we take for granted at a, a big WWE <laughs> show now. Um, the, those were happening in Texas uh, during the uh, WCW, uh, WCCW period. Uh, Fritz Von Erich, I think, was, was very, uh, very conscious of that. Von Erich owned yes. the Dallas Sportatorium. Uh, yeah. which was the the home venue for WCCW. And um, he knew how to put on a live wrestling show. And the, the wrestlers who came through his territory were a very different kind of character than Ganya was creating. But they were the kinds of guys who could fill a room with their personality. It was your Bruiser Brodies, your Freebirds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the... the uh, kind of huge personality guys that you would buy a ticket to see uh, rather than just sitting back and watching on TV. 
Yeah, and that the this live show could be a televised show, and that mm-hmm. that's that's very difficult um, to do, and obviously sort of taken for granted now. But um, you know, this is we're talking early eighties, late seventies when he starts uh, when they start broadcasting uh, syndicated. So, you know, across a variety of local channels, mostly in the South, but uh, sort of expanding throughout the the nation. Um, Again, sort of before WWF. Part of the problem, problem, I say kind of in quotes here, is that they weren't touring. So it was still very... Texas, um, you know, it was the Sportatorium. It was, uh, you know, later, uh, again, as you mentioned, some of these other sort of venues that are sort of synonymous with Texas sport. Um, you know, that sort of Texas pride perhaps limited the uh, ability for that, even though, you know, in its early days, WWF also only really mm-hmm. taped out of the Northeast, but that's just taken as a given that if something's in New York, it's sort of American, but if it's in Texas, it's not like Saturday night live is always from New York coast to coast. But we, right. But we don't think of that as like, yeah, but Saturday night lives only New York's comedy, maybe a little bit, but not really, but there, there's a little bit of that Texas, Texas stink. And I say that in a very loving way, uh, to WCCW. Um, well, it, it, but, it was it, as a promotion, uh, both in those terms and in terms of booking philosophy oh, and everything about the way it was structured, it was inward facing. It was yes. not facing and, the world. It was facing in. Right. Um, yet they still had these wonderful techniques that worked outwardly, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, WCCW is known as the originators of sort of entrance music, mm-hmm. for example, that instead of just having people walk out... Like, yeah, let's pump up this crowd. Let's have people respond to them. Uh, even just a lot of dynamic camera angles, mm-hmm. the simple effect of sh- switching cameras in a match rather than just like maybe having like one wide cam and one close. Um, that is so simple, but so important to to not just getting across what's happening on this live show, but doing so in a way that's dynamic. So even if you're watching at home, you feel more engaged in the product mm-hmm. rather than, you know, uh, it's not just a sporting event where, you know, I just want the most clear cut shot so I can mm-hmm. just see what they're doing. I don't want a bunch of edits. Uh, obviously, it can go too far. If you look at some contemporary WWE <laughs> programming, uh, the edits can go too far. But uh, it does make it dynamic. It does make a difference than just sort of pointing a camera at the ring and letting people go. So simple things like that, the sort of sound, the sort of the it, it, the bits in between the matches, the introductions, the opening sequences, um, you know, these are some of the oldest wrestling footage you could go back as someone living today mm-hmm and watch it and not feel totally disjointed if you did as you if you watch things before this you might be like oh my gosh this is so slow or just so foreign you watch wccw you get it like Mm -hmm. you can and this is stuff that's over 30 years old but you're like yeah you know it's like certain old sitcoms where you're like you know, sometimes if you go back to some really early sitcoms you're like whoa this is how it moved it's a different pace this sets the pace for televised live 
sort of wrestling. Well, I, th- I think the two things that contributed to that were, you know, there, there's a stylistic component and a component of substance. So you mentioned mm-hmm. um, the, the way that the show and the event was put together um, in terms of how it was presented, how it was televised, how it was shot. Um, and I, I agree with you. Like, you, if you have the WWE Network, which I guess that tells you how this story ends, um, you, <laughs> you can watch uh, old WCCW uh, shows right there and um they hold up a lot better than i would say even a lot of wwf shows from the 80s um oh absolutely they're they're very they're very well done and and the the guy who we have to mention as as part of this that would not get caught out in the family conversation is playboy gary hart who was (laughs) for a, a number of years the uh primary creative force in wccw uh, including during kind of its its golden age rise period, um, there, there's that piece of it in terms of presentation. But then the other thing of it was the wrestling itself. Um, one of the things you would see in different promotions around the country um, during this period of time was a distinct in ring style, um, and this is something that when we get kind of down the road into our other conversations, you know, Ring of Honor has a style. New Japan has a style. Um, and at this point in time, WCCW had a style. Um, and there there were kind of two components to it. One was when the Von Erichs were involved, it was, you know, super heroics mm-hmm. and high flying and squeaky clean all American yeah. boys. And when anyone else was involved, it was just fighting. It was <laughs> violent men fighting each other. Um <laughs> And the the two kind of came to a head with the the legendary feud of the Freebirds and the Von Erichs, which ran for mm-hmm. many many years, was very violent, um, but was structured in such a way as to build hate and build resentment over a longer period of time than is often afforded in wrestling storytelling, largely because to go to the nepotism point of view. The Von Erich kids weren't going anywhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and I think we mentioned this briefly when we, uh, our first uh, trip back to this sort of um, regional uh, era of wrestling. It's not, yes, it's nepotism, but it's not simply, you it's know. It's strategic. Uh, right, exactly. It's not simply, oh, I want to put this person here because I like them. But, right, you know, people can move around. It's, there is, it's, it's less risk uh, in putting your title or putting, you know, as we talked about, when you're choosing who wins, when you're choosing who's your champion, you're making an investment. Mm-hmm. And you, a, that is a safe investment when you are personally yes. related to the person you're investing in because they are less likely to sort of turn their back on you or leave or not show up for an event. Uh, so, yeah, it happens, but it de- certainly happened with WCCW. And th- this is not to say that the Von Erichs were, like, bad wrestlers. No, they, like, they were, no, they e- were, each of them were, were very talented. Like, there, there oh, was- yeah. At least one legitimate main eventer in there and two very good mid-card wrestlers. Absolutely. And as you mentioned there with the style, some some innovation going on there. Some Mm -hmm. some very early high flying. uh, Obviously, at least, you know, innovative for a a sort of American context. Um, But, uh, you know, what they were, you know, Texas isn't that far from Mexico. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's not like, but... 
uh, it was innovative to Americanize. And so, uh, you know, yeah, you watch some of those those Von Eric matches and you see, uh, you know, it might just be a splash off the top rope. But, yeah. you know, as common as that is today, it was a big deal in the 70s and 80s. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, definitely doing some stuff. And and because of that, surviving a, a bit longer uh, than the AWA, I believe, um, you know, they... It was close. They, I, I think they, I mean, they were around long enough to to have churned out like one last person to go on to be a superstar, um, which was Stone Cold Steve Austin. But right. they, um, they kind yeah. of charted the same downward course. And exactly. And the, the the famous story of WCCW is of course the uh the the tragedy of the Von Erich boys um you know one by one for different reasons uh Fritz Von Erich's sons died um yeah. I, I I believe uh Kevin Von Erich is still alive um I think he is the the one who survived I think um so. but uh yeah when we we talked about um the, the nepotism piece of this, and it was not strictly nepotism. They, they were very, very talented, and, and Fritz clearly loved his sons, but one by one, they, they passed away, and when that happened, the promotion never recovered, Fritz never recovered, and it happened to be going on at a time when the business was under existential threat from Vince McMahon, from particularly relevant for uh, the Texas audience, from Jim Crockett. Um, as well at that point in time. Um, uh, to You mentioned earlier, uh, banded together with the AWA in a, a yeah. last-ditch attempt uh, <laughs> to, to make it, but um, I would say that the story of the decline is not radically different from what happened to the AWA. I think it was compounded by the personal tragedies that were there. But again, the, the wrestling world changed, and WCCW was not built to withstand that change. Yep. Yep. So at this point, just sort of uh, reset where we are. We've sort of, these were the last, uh, you know, and the NWA obviously, but we've, we've talked about them at length before. This was what was going on in the eighties where pretty much all these promotions are on the downward trend mm-hmm. as the WWF is on the upward trend. And this is basically the period of 1980 till you get to the end of the 80s and at this point WWF is is pretty much king um by the early 90s. Uh even earlier than then, but mm-hmm. at this point WrestleMania has been sort of established as an ongoing thing. Hulk Hogan's the biggest name. Rock and wrestling uh, is going on. You've got wrestling in cartoons. And then like, wow, now you've established, at least in the the sort of mainstream culture, wrestling equals WWF, Mm -hmm. I would say, by the end of the late 80s. Obviously, you're going to have older fans who remember these groups we just talked about. But for all intents and purposes, especially younger people, it just becomes sort of synonymous. They, If you know about these other wrestling promotions, it's only really because of, uh, you know, hearing it from your parents. Uh, because at this point, it's not like, uh, I mean, I, w- I should actually look into this before I make this statement, but I don't think it would be easy to be like finding reruns or t- tapes of uh, a lot of this stuff unless yeah. it was in a personal collection. 
Um, I'm sure there was bootlegs and things like that. I'm sure there was a market for that because there always was. But uh, yeah, at this point, uh, if you want new wrestling and we're talking like 1990, it's WWF or or bust. So um, that, that certainly starts changing the game, though, if you're paying attention when we said WWF has been the main sort of player, we've only given it 20 years. So mm-hmm. obviously the 90s don't establish that dominance as clearly yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at this point, you know, we we talked extensively in our History of WCW episode about the, uh, the battle in the 90s between WWF and WCW, um, which, you know, there, there's a lot of different components to that. Um, it, it is... This is how it feels to be old, Drew, because <laughs> we're getting ready to talk about things that happened when we were young, and then you stop and say, oh, yeah, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the... You know, it, it's... You had these two giants that were fighting it out, and they formed in some way... In some way, they sucked the oxygen out of the room, but there was also kind of a canopy effect there, and there was room below them for players to carve out a space um but as with any upstart the only way to do that is you have to compete asymmetrically um you cannot be successful doing what the big guys are doing if you are starting small um and i think the the company that embodied that was of course ECW which again ECW hasn't existed for 18 years now so let that settle in um but it was if we think of like AWA and WCCW as the the last of the old guard the ones who who died out because the world passed them by uh ECW was an established NWA affiliate and they decided, or their their creative team, specifically Paul Heyman, decided that uh, they were not going to get passed by. They were going to get ahead of the curve. And yeah. did in a really incredible way. Yeah, they... ECW become... First off, the 18 years ago, which makes me just... It's another one of those situations when... Whenever they sh- someone from ECW shows, like a, when Rhino's in the ring or something, and everyone's chanting ECW, and I'm like, how many of you people watched ECW? <laughs> and I'm not talking about the ECW show that yeah, WWE yeah. put on. Uh, we're talking about the actual promotion here. Um, but yeah, I think ECW is at least sets up a really interesting case study or sort of prototype of, again, as you say, sort of, another way of doing wrestling not at the top level uh not top level in terms of quality but in terms of just numbers Mm -hmm. and can you exist um can you succeed can you change that definition of success um and in some ways they did despite existing for what like six years i think uh, they, they were not even so um, the, the the inciting incident of ecw was 1993 when shane douglas threw down okay. the, the nwa belt okay. and then I, th- right. I think the fold was late 2000 early 2001 yeah um so you know such a short amount of time uh so if anything 
I don't think that diminishes what they did. In some ways, it's like, how can a promotion that existed for so short of time have such a sort of uh, prominence in wrestling history speaks to how influential they are. Um, but influential, not just in the ring. We'll talk about that, obviously, of, of sort of pushing the boundaries in terms of graphic content, mm-hmm. sexual content, violent content, um, hardcore wrestling. Mm-hmm. Like, we can talk about all of that, and we should. But... I think it's, but I think that is a disservice to what they were really, to what's really impactful about them, which was, as we've said, sort of existing as a sort of just smaller tier. Yeah. Um, that hey, we don't have to be the biggest brand in wrestling to be successful. I don't have to be Coke or Pepsi. I could be RC Cola, <laughs> uh, which is maybe not the best comparison, yeah. but something sort of like that. Um, and so this is not a, and I think it success particularly because there really wasn't, it wasn't a holdover from Mm -hmm. those eighties or even seventies heydays. It was an attempt to recreate, like, it wasn't like, Hey, let's get the AWA back together or Mm -hmm. let's try, let's try to do some more NWA stuff. As we said, this is, it was Eastern championship wrestling, a sort of Philadelphia based, uh, promotion that was affiliated with NWA that sort of branches off, rebrands themselves as Extreme Championship Wrestling, and again ends up being successful in this third tier level. I would argue both because of in the ring, but also again, it always comes back taking advantage of new technologies. Yeah, that obviously Vince McMahon sort of establishes the pay per view ness of of wrestling promotions but then ecw does some really cool stuff not with just pay-per-views but home video sales and and they go a different way sort of they still have a televised product but that becomes less important Mm -hmm. it becomes about the specials it becomes about the home videos the pay-per-views and that more so than the hardcore wrestling, I say, will survive to the things we're going to talk about in the coming episodes, mm-hmm. with things that ROH does, things that uh, other sort of companies end up doing. So uh, obviously we could, we, we, you know, we might come back to ECW later uh, just because there's so much there, but um, maybe even focusing on, on some of those sort of uh, structural decisions, uh, yeah. uh, strategic decisions might be important because i think there's plenty out there about the violence and and things like that not that that's not interesting but no and and yeah there i think there is an entire episode to be had about hardcore wrestling uh that extends well beyond ecw better place for that yeah but the the structural component i I think is is really key and i there are I, i would say a couple of important pieces to that um WWF did a very good job in the early '80s of taking um, taking their progr- their uh, promotion and turning it into programming, and then uh, commoditizing that. But ECW to me is the first wrestling promotion that was born in the age of modern television and cable television. Uh, even even as it kind of extended beyond that into its specials and its its home video piece. Um, and the entire structure of the way it presented wrestling was very much of the of the moment where 
television in and of itself was being experimented with in really interesting ways. So in the early to mid-90s, um, the way that the shows were cut, the way promos were filmed, the way that, um, you know, e- even just this Joey Styles' voice uh, narrating the product uh, in a, a very non-traditional way. Uh, all combined to give the program an, an edgy feel. Um, and, and that's not not to say anything of, again, the, the violence or that side of it, but it felt new in a way that wrestling in WWE, WCW, didn't at the time. The, the closest that WCW got during its prime was the early days of the NWO, which was in a lot of ways, very ECW influenced, at least stylistically, in terms of some, you look at some of the backstage uh, uh, promos that the early NWO cut, um, it had an ECW feel to it, and then ultimately into what WWE did in the later part of that decade. So there was a a stylistic component there that evolved from being a television, or rather a kind of modern media product, what modern media was in, in 1994, 95. Um, and then the, the second piece of that was WCW and WWE both operated on the principle of let's get the most fans. Let's get the mm-hmm. biggest audience. And ECW operated very much on the principle of let's find the audience that gets us. Mm-hmm. Um you mentioned the the videotape uh, kind of home video market that was pushed. Oh yeah, um, you know, ECW was a cult phenomenon, and it was uh, at its most successful deliberately a cult phenomenon. If if you were a wrestling fan in 1996 and you were watching ECW, you were a certain kind of wrestling fan, um, mm. and ECW as a brand and as a company cultivated that. Uh, an ECW audience was a different kind of audience. And uh, in in that sense especially, when we look at some of the, the companies that would follow, that idea of not I'm going to chase the biggest crowd that I can, but I'm going to define what my audience is and find that audience. Um, that to me is maybe the biggest biggest modern legacy of ECW. It was not just the not the specifics of the content which we can dig into but more just the general willingness to say I'm going to be a niche player and I'm going to build a business in this niche and I'm going to kill it within that niche and own yeah. it yeah um the ECW yeah fan the goal wasn't just I want people to watch ECW with everything else they watch, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or even the idea of, oh, you can watch ECW and watch these other things. The idea was you are an evangelist yes. for ECW, uh, literally in the sort of, uh, and I say evangelist in the sense of like, even the sort of sermon-esque uh, sort of promos Paul Heyman would oh, sort of Paul cut was, about ECW, right? Right, preach like this is like th- he was doing this purposefully to the idea thus not just and it wasn't this sort of like you know to 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 quote a sort of recent uh, corporatism on WWF television or WWE television of you know you guys or the fans <laughs> are in control we're listening right there it it never came across like it was literally like you guys 
watching ECW love this shit. Mm-hmm. Go tell everyone else how awesome it is, right? Mm-hmm. It was just this sort of Because we're like, all in this together. We are right. all fighting this together. And the aesthetic was part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, they in some ways they used what could be conceived of as weaknesses. The fact that they weren't touring. It was almost yeah. always in the same arena, and it was a tiny beat-up arena. Calling it an arena is very um, generous. Right, exactly. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, they didn't have uh, fancy graphics packages uh, or they didn't have, like, a fancy stage and that characters walked out. They used the weaknesses or the deficiencies as strengths. Mm-hmm. That that was the appeal so instead of trying to be you know glitzy instead of trying to be what they couldn't be or what would look cheap if they tried to fake Mm -hmm. it what if we do that on purpose that's one of the reasons why when wwf later tried to revive ecw as a wwf brand Mm -hmm. it didn't work because it had the gloss and the sheen of Mm -hmm. a big multi-million dollar company trying to do uh, a sort of punk. It was like, you know, trying to do a punk rock aesthetic, but you're a mainstream music company. It doesn't yeah. work. Um, it ECW actually was what they sort of claimed to be. It was, you know, Paul Heyman was an on-camera figure, not just because he was a good talker, but because we're not going to hire someone else to do it. Like, they emphasized the cheapness a lot of times, both in the aesthetics and even on air, the sort of cheapness of the brand. And so that positioning themselves as a an aesthetic difference, as a structural difference, uh, inured the fans to become sort of evangelists to say, this can be different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also what I would allow, would say, allowed ECW to coexist to the point where the WWF didn't fear them and even partnered with them. Yep. Uh, when ECW sort of invaded WWF and they ended up having a working relationship together, um, you know, that was that's a very interesting, savvy move. One we'll talk about more when we uh, talk mm-hmm. about some of uh, the things with ROH and things like that, or even some of the uh, sort of smaller regional promotions that end up becoming these sort of training grounds for, for WWE. Um, it's interesting that that happens this early in the midst of, you know, this sort of battle between WWF and WCW for sort of Monday night supremacy. Here's this ECW existing on its own, but not all, but actually being acknowledged by WWF, which I think is a massive, um, you know, it was a massive, it played a massive role. It actually doesn't get talked about that much in terms of the WCW, WWF history. But I think even just acknowledging ECW's existence by WWF uh, took a lot because it yeah. in some ways had to acknowledge their own weaknesses as a television show. Um, from ECW's perspective, I think they just saw it as a chance to, you know, they were always kind of hanging on by a thread. So it's like, if we can get the mainstream attention, we'll take it. It mm-hmm. worked for a few years after it, but eventually, you know, they, they sort of succumbed as everyone did. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's such a fascinating time uh, in the 96, 97, when you had this sort of uh, 
ECW started appearing on WWF. This is not normal in the sense of like, this was not a big thing that like, oh, the America was demanding it. This was <laughs> still at this point only airing, I think, in and around Philadelphia. Yeah. Or again, every so often on these home market spe- uh, home video specials, and, and it was, I think it. We talked about why the AWA and WCCW failed ultimately, um, and I think why ECW failed is just as instructive, uh, but uh, very very different. And when I think of modern second tier promotions and how they have structured themselves and what they have tried to do. Um, I think that just as they learned their lessons from ECW about how to define their identity, they have also learned their lessons about where not to go. Uh, Mm -hmm. ECW was the third name in wrestling in the 1990s. And at a certain point, whether it was financial reality, whether it was just raw ambition, who knows, but... Uh, ECW decided that they did not just want to be a third name anymore and began broadcasting nationally on TNN, uh, began extending themselves into uh, shows in different territories. They were doing West Coast shows now. They were expanding. They weren't, I don't think they were ever a full-blown touring company, but they were, were growing outward in that way. And they were doing it at a time when WWE and WCW were really at the peak of the Monday Night Wars and were sucking up as much talent as they could. And Mm -hmm. so ECW decided to try to go big at the point when they were losing most of their best talent. Um, And ultimately, again, it was maybe a more a more normal story than we've seen with, uh, you know, what happened with WWF or WCW. Uh, ECW spent more than it could afford to pay. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm looking at the, the figures on Wikipedia right now. The company's uh, total assets were about $1.4 million and its total liabilities were about $8.8 $8 million. <laughs> uh, and it lost its TV deal. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, and and it's you know, yeah, you, you grow because you feel like you need to grow, mm-hmm. um, and that's something. That's a story, you know. That's that's a strategy we'll come back to, uh, you know. And I think putting it the way you did is is sort of right. You know, you either you either accept always being a third tier. Or, or second tier, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. or you try to make that jump. And that's a big sort of risk. And and as you said, it was maybe not the most calculated risk. Um, you know, it maybe it definitely wasn't striking while the iron was hot. Um, but it was also sort of partly because you were sort of defined as being different. Yeah. And so, you know, if you try to go on T, like would that work on national television probably not um uh for a lot of reasons uh beyond just the violence and the obscenity but even just the sort of style they're going for um it was a very particular aesthetic i think they would have had to change up that aesthetic and Mm -hmm. um they certainly could have um but that's interesting and so for them it was you know there's a reason why it's short-lived but you know 
to to make, get poetic about it it's the sort of burn bright you know yeah. burn twice as bright for half as long um yeah but put, put but it this does, way there there no one is in the stands of major WWE stadium events right now chanting WCW WCW yeah yeah no that's a great point and i mean that's part of that is ECW always it was symbolically alternative yeah like Saying ECW didn't necessarily chanting ECW doesn't necessarily mean you want that company. It just means you want an alternative. Yeah, the equivalent is the CM Punk chant. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's sort of like that, right? It wasn't, you know, everyone chanting CM Punk weren't saying we desperately want this specific character back. It was most of the time simply saying, I don't like what I'm seeing. And so that's what ECW was. So they always have you know one of the reasons they remain that in in the sort of imaginary the cultural imaginary of wrestling fans is they always were that they yeah. never were a WCW they were never a oh what if WC ECW was the dark like no one talks about ECW's like the dark horse like they could yeah. have won the Monday like the 90s were no they were never meant to they were always meant to be that but maybe they didn't even recognize that they could have stayed that way mm-hmm. and probably succeeded. That's what will change when we talk about uh, in these next episodes, these sort of companies that coexist when WWE is literally the only game. They have gone public in 2002, 2001. Uh, 2000, uh, I think. I always get, yeah. Or they went public before they bought WCW. Yeah. Right. Um, because they did that in 2008. Anyway, also that sort of turn of the millennium, uh, when it just becomes WWE, and that's and that's it. You know. You know. Then, then, then nobody even tries. ECW is kind of kind of like they see they see the two behemoths fighting, and they're like, maybe sneak sneak up and and steal some stuff stuff while everyone's watching. You know, these two giant giant behemoths. Drew, your your audio has gone so fuzzy that I've missed like the last ten seconds of what you said. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I did, I got, yeah, it really could have come, come in the nineties where you had these like, like these two major faces in WCW, WWF fighting for supremacy, and they're just kind of riding that wave. Yeah, riding the wave is maybe actually the best way to describe it. And then the wave ends. Yeah, the wave crashes. Yeah, but lots. I think there are a ton of lessons to learn from ECW. Uh, I think a a lot of what we talked about with AWA and WCCW was kind of what not to do, what broke down, (laughs) what failed. There's a lot to learn from ECW about what to do. And it's very clear who learned those lessons going forward. But when the EC, so ECW technically closed its doors after WCW was bought. Mm. So, ECW, the closure of ECW was the end of the consolidation period. That was it. And when that happened, there was a an open question of, okay, is this just it? it, it you know, we, we have Major League Baseball. We have the NFL. <laughs> we have the NBA. Are we just going to have WWE? Uh, is, yeah. is that it? Uh, and over the course of the next few years, uh, the the wrestling world answered no and answered no in very different ways. 
And I think that is where we will pick it up in, uh, in our next conversation. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll, we'll ring the bell on the last of the old guard and we'll move into our, uh, our homework assignments. Do you have a homework assignment? Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty broad. We didn't get to talk about it too much. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. Uh, uh, you maybe have heard the news where, again, we're, we're recording this uh, a little bit after, uh, mean Gene Okerlund, uh, has passed away. May- probably one of the most iconic non-wrestling, like non-wrestler figures of wrestling. Yeah. Um, mostly due to sheer longevity uh, of uh, existing in several promotions. Uh, also being both WWE and WCW, one of those sort of rare figures. Um, you know, uh, we talk a little bit about sort of the role of other people, the people who aren't wrestlers and, and, and I think we both share a soft spot for the managers and announcers and even referees. And, and mean gene is, is just maybe just one of the sort of platonic ideals of the person existing in the world of wrestling. Yes. He was a real person but he understood he lived in a heightened world um, is maybe the best way I could put it. So I would just suggest go finding any sort of mean gene clips. To be honest, WWE's look back video was very good. You don't need the Hulk Hogan part of it. I'll just say that, <laughs> that uh, and I'll leave it, leave it at that. Just watch the video. Uh, I would actually recommend, cause obviously a lot of people associate Hulk Hogan. I would actually, actually recommend go watch any mean gene interview with macho man, yes. Randy Savage. Yes. I would say I actually enjoy that pairing a lot more. Um, Hulk Hogan, I felt like always sort of treated mean gene as a sort of sidekick, mm-hmm. which I get and works. Uh, but Macho Man, in only the way he Randy Savage could, was in such his own world. Um, it just made it was Mean Gene became this wonderful sort of straight man reaction, sort of everyday sort of person of like, well, I'm just gonna go with what you're saying. <laughs> um, that but, didn't make any but, sense, but we'll move on. Yeah, and but I think there's also something really special that in the world of wrestling, fans can remember and hold dear someone who really was a supporting character. He was always supporting. He was always supporting actor. It's like, it's like uh, Richard Jenkins or something. Who's like <laughs> one of those actors who's like, yeah, he's always great in those movies. He's never, if he is a lead, it's never that big of a movie. It's just like, no, it's a reminder that character actors are awesome. And yes. that's mean gene. Um, he was never like shoved into a storyline or like, let's try to turn something into it. No. Um, and somehow he both stood out, but didn't overshadow. And I, I don't even understand how that's possible, but it is. So uh, yeah, if you want to get specific, there's a, a lot of videos of him interviewing uh, Macho Man, Randy Savage. Those are probably my favorite, but obviously there's, Four Horsemen, Ric Flair. Um, there's there's plenty of Roddy Piper, plenty of good ones. But mm-hmm. I would say Macho Man is probably my favorite uh, version of, of Mean Gene, just sort of uh, sort of trying to to keep a straight face in a in a crazy world. 
I think that's great. I totally agree with you on the Macho Man point. The the Mean Gene interview with Hulk Hogan to watch is the one you should have already watched, which is <laughs> the Hulk Hogan heel turn uh, and formation of the NWO video. And I want to call out Mean Gene specifically in that because... Yeah. Um, so it, disgusting. <laughs> Gene was the voice of the audience in yeah. that moment. Um, so in, and because we as an audience had grown to identify with him for 15 years at that point and known the background of his relationship with Hogan and all of that. Gene sells that moment as an active supporting player. Well, that's the point. He was, you know, WWE and contemporary WWE leans so hard on trying to mimic, uh, you know, legitimate in quotes sports of Mm -hmm. like ESPN broadcasts. They, that they're, interviewers they're per, they're they aren't personalities we yeah. aren't meant to. i don't know anything about charlie caruso right and not that's not that that's not her fault she, yeah. it's not like she's bad at her job it's just that that's what they are giving her um a supporting character can can still be a character yeah. and you're exactly right we felt gene's sense of betrayal there because we knew who he was if somebody turns and you know, uh, Caleb Braxton shows up in the ring to interview them. Like, I don't know what her personal yeah. feelings are on T- the matter. Tell me what you think about this, Caleb. Right. Uh, but I'd love to. And in some ways, to kind of link it back very briefly to what we talked about at the beginning, you get more of that at house shows. You do. Which is fun. You definitely at mine, do. Craig Hamilton was like, I'm from Cincinnati. I'm like, I don't even know if that's true, but we're going to cheer <laughs> you. Uh, I'm like, he could literally say that in every town and no one's going to challenge him. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Mean Gene is, is me. Yeah, it's just, it's from a different time. And, and I think there's maybe a, uh yeah it's just like it was when wrestling was more of a a variety show than than a simulation of sports and uh oh what what a key player he was he was so i i am uh for my homework recommendation i am going to uh we talked about wccw earlier and the uh the role that wcw uh, wccw god it's so tough it Uh, is it would have never succeeded. No. Three letters. That's the yeah, most. Three. Even, yeah. First thing Vince McMahon did when he came back was drop the third W. Um, uh, the way that they put on shows, the way that they uh, played to massive stadiums, the way that they uh, leveraged larger than life characters that were not cartoonish. Mm. Um, and, and if you boil down WCCW, to one match or one moment, this is the one that you should watch, and it's the one that everyone's going to recommend, but hey, we're assuming that you haven't watched this yet. Uh, December 25th, 1982, the show, the bafflingly named Christmas Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. Yep, held at the... Re- I can't believe they got away with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um held at the reunion arena in dallas texas the match is the famous match between rick flair and carrie von eric for the nwa world heavyweight championship flair is the champion carrie von eric the hometown boy is the challenger uh michael p.s hayes in the most ludicrous pair of skin tight blue jeans you will ever see anyone wear uh as the guest referee um this is wccw at its peak, it is mm. an exceptionally good match in front of a rabid audience 
that has a lot of really good, subtle character work going on and builds to its its logical and tragic climax. Um, when I watch uh, some of what's going on in NXT these days um, mm. with a lot of the work that Johnny Gargano's doing and the mm -hmm. gargano champa Alistair black triangle. Um, I see a lot of shades of the way that characterization is presented in this match in particular in WCCW in general in this time. Uh, Michael Hayes legitimately goes into this match as uh, Kerry Von Erich's friend. And by the end of the match, he isn't. And he's not really sure how he got there, except that his other friend chose to lean the other way. And he's going to go with Terry Gordy at the end. Hmm. Um, it's magnificent storytelling. It's a really good match. It will show you what WCCW was about. Uh, and should just generally be on any any wrestling fans' watch list. So... Uh, you can see it on the WWE Network. You can probably see it on YouTube somewhere uh, if you're so inclined. Um, December 25th, 1982, Christmas Star Wars. <laughs> Kerry Von Erich against Ric Flair in a steel cage. It's it's a magnificent piece of work. Awesome. Yeah, there all, a lot of those are really good. As we mentioned before, like WCCW, like those are very watchable oh, yeah. shows. If you wanna, if if you've watched older things and you couldn't handle it, like there's there's no reason you shouldn't be able to handle uh, some of these shows. They're they're really great stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, be before we close out, I I have to ask because the answer is no for me, but it's it's on my list. Have you watched uh, Wrestle Kingdom thirteen yet? Uh, I did. Yeah? I did. What are your um, thoughts? Yeah. Uh, it was very good. It was a very good show. Um, and New Japan is very interesting um, in terms of, like, sometimes they make really weird sort of choices overall, but they know how to put on that show. There's a reason that show, like, there are people, kind of like me, who don't really watch much New Japan elsewhere, but you can turn in, you can tune in to Wrestle Kingdom and be like, all right, I'm, I am all in on this. Um Pun, I guess, not intended. Um, yeah, uh, no, it was very good. Um, it there is there was an a, a, a overall sense of just of change and finality. Like this is right before AEW is officially announced, but it's sort of everyone sort of knows it's coming. Mm -hmm. And you know, Cody has a really bad match with Juice. I shouldn't say, but it was just like it was. It was just full of it. Uh, apparently, Cody was working injured, and so that's why Brandy was getting involved. All, whatever. And the Young Bucks were kind of phoning it in. There was this sense, and then with all these people, sort of anyone involved with AEW sort of losing, there was this sense of, are these people all leaving? And then mm -hmm. if they're all leaving, where does that leave New Japan? Like, all this work that they've done, specifically this work they've done investing in us yeah uh on the show they announced uh a lot of big upcoming shows like the g the g1 and things will be starting in the u.s and these big mm -hmm. shows um there was this weird i had this sense of both like oh wow that's really cool but then these other moments of like oh uh-oh like yeah. uh, is this gonna have they relied maybe too much on uh these sort of uh not 
you know, in some ways homegrown talent, but people who maybe were always at one point wanting to go back to the U.S., either to WWE or to their own thing. So it was very interesting. But uh, in terms of putting together a show, I thought it was great. The the matches were varied. Um, you know, you had some, like, technical blowouts. You know, I didn't know. I mean, starting with, if you watch one show, watch Kota, uh, or one match, go watch Kota Ibushi. Um, Will Ospreay. And Will Ospreay. It's unbelievable. And not just in the sort of, like, they're very good at flips. They do some wonderful groundwork, um, wonderful storytelling, such a good match. Um, then you have the hardcore match with Jericho um, and Naito. You have the sort of the epic in the championship. Jay White and Okada have their own sort of match. I, I'm not a fan of Jay White, but I liked what that <laughs> match was attempting to do. Um, I thought it was it's just a very well put together show. Um, you can know very little about it. You can literally not know who these characters are. And you'll freaking enjoy it, I think. I think it's just, uh, yeah, there's something sort of, uh, yeah, very uh, unique about it. But yeah, I, I really liked it. And it, it's it's a rare show that also flies by. You're like, wow, like this, this is a lot of wrestling. But it, it flew by for me um, watching it. And I think just because they, they, they kept showing new, new stuff. And it's just like, it's a well put together card. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, check that out. There's some extra credit if you want. Uh, if you haven't, Wrestle Kingdom, I just very quickly, if you don't know, it's kind of the WrestleMania. It's the big show for New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, which is uh, the biggest promotion out of Japan. But they have a lot of Americans on there. Uh, big WWE names like Finn Balor, AJ Styles. Uh, they all sort of got their start. Brock Lesnar, I believe, was a champion. Even Brock Lesnar, yeah, yeah. They all sort of had big runs there. Uh, before coming back or coming stateside. So, um, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, Chris Jericho being weird again, but God love him. Yeah. I mean, Never he's, clearly, he's clearly enjoying just trying new stuff, and I love him for it. So it doesn't always work, but I love him. <laughs> I, I we, have, we have resisted doing, like, wrestler-centric episodes of this show, uh, but there is going to come a point where I think there's going oh, to be absolutely. at least a mini-sode about Chris Jericho oh my specifically. God. Oh, my God. He, I mean, you could do an entire season on this guy. I mean, half the things we've mentioned he's been in, yeah. like WECW, New Japan, like, oh, my goodness, uh, and now AEW. I mean, you know, God bless him. Uh, God bless him. But, uh, yeah, he has a great match with Naito. Like, at first... You know, you at first you sort of think, oh, the no disqualification is just to like, you know, Jericho's what, 48? Yeah, he's not a young man. He's not a young man. This is just to hide it. But then you realize, no, it's to have a different style of match on the card. And it comes at the perfect time because you're like, I've seen all these barn burners. Let's just see a sort of brawl. And it worked. And it freaking got Naito over more than he already was. So, yeah, good stuff. Awesome. So, so the next time we come back in this uh, in this series on the rest of the wrestling world, yeah. we'll uh, we'll start taking a look at those promotions that uh, followed on from the consolidation that uh, paved yeah. the way into the new modern wrestling era. Uh, but that'll be next time. For this time, uh, I'm Stefan Claypool. You can find me on Twitter at S T E F A N C L A Y P O O L. 
Uh, and I'm Drew Zolidis. You can find me on Twitter at D-R-Z-O-L-I-D-E-S. Uh, yeah, come say hello. Yes. And uh, with that, we'll ring the bell. And class is, class dismissed. That's our new thing. Bye. Class dismissed. Bye. 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 That's, that's my not new thing. That's our old thing. <laughs> <laughs>